0: We
1: invite you to take your Bible today and open to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, verses 57 to 80 is our text for today. Luke chapter one, 57 to 80. With God's help, let me invite you to turn your heart to hear his word today. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying what then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him. to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we may being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you child will be called the prophet of the most high. And the child grew and became strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Today we continue our look at the many first reactions that Luke records to the conception and birth, both of John the Baptist and the Lord Jesus Christ, last week we looked at Mary's song of praise, what we call the Magnificat. Uh, This week it is Zechariah's turn with what has traditionally been referred to as the Benedictus. That comes from the Latin word for blessed uh, that you find at the very beginning of verse 68. But the passage brings us full circle back to where Luke started his account with Zechariah and Elizabeth. You remember how the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah while he is on temple duty, uh, serving in the temple as a priest, and he delivers this word that Zechariah's wife is going to bear a son advanced in years though she was. Well, now we come to the point nine months later, and that time has come. And she bore a son. Well, there are many surprising things about this account. It's always a delight when the Lord brings a new child uh, into a home, into, into a household, and we get to see all of the, the smiles that are brought to the faces of friends and family. You see that here. It's just amplified. Um, I remember when we brought our oldest son uh, home from from the hospital, re- really even before that, and um, I brought him into the, the nursery ward there, and my parents were on the other side of the glass there, and I pulled the blanket back over uh, his little head, and there was that bright red hair, like a new copper penny, and I, their mouths just gaped open as Jenny and I had. We weren't expecting that. that. That was a big surprise. Well, you have something of that here. It's just amplified over and over again. Not only do you have the surprise that Zechariah and Elizabeth have a child at all, but then there's the surprise that circulates around the child's name. And there's a big controversy. There's a debate over th- this issue. They're all astonished. First of all, they see well, the Lord has shown great mercy to this couple, and family and relatives come in. God has condescended, and He's shown favor, He's shown compassion to Elizabeth. And what becomes with, of that? You see, well, they rejoice. This great God shows great mercy to to Elizabeth and there is great rejoicing in turn. Already you get a little bit of a hint of, of, of fulfillment to verse 14 where the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. Great mercy leads to great joy on the part of God's people. Okay, well, they come to name this child. And so the, the eighth day, they go to circumcise the baby. Again, this reinforces the idea that Zechariah and Elizabeth are God-fearing um, uh, people. But you have this dispute that arises, not between Zechariah and Elizabeth, Sometimes that happens between a mother and a father, can't agree on what they're gonna name the child. That's not the case here. It's between Zechariah and Elizabeth and their their relatives and friends. Now, ordinarily, the text tells us the child would have been named Zechariah. After his father, or you would have named a baby after his his grandfather. That was the normal social convention. It's what everybody would have would have expected. It's it, it, things were not at all like they are in our day, where everybody tries to come up with something new, and unique. Or you take a name that's been around and you spell it in some bizarre way that nobody will ever be able to remember. Um, family ties, tradition. Honoring the generations that came before you. That was the the norm. And so um, the family says, Well, what about Zechariah? Well, his mother interjects, No. He shall be called John. That is very unusual. And you can see the crowd protest in verse 61. None of your relatives is called by this name. Are you really going to depart from tradition? Well, Zechariah, the father, would be the one to know. He would make the call. Now, seeing that Zechariah cannot hear, they make signs to him, and they inquire what he wanted the baby boy to be called. So Zechariah calls for this writing tablet, a small wooden tablet. It would have been covered in wax, and he begins to write, His name is John. And it's emphatic. Elizabeth says, He shall be called John. Zechariah says, His name is John. And that is important. They all wonder in response to that. They're no less confused by Zechariah's response as they are by Elizabeth. But we know what the rest of the family and the friends don't, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are not operating according to family tradition or social convention or whatever else it may be. They are operating according to the revealed will of God. God has spoken. Gabriel said, you shall call his name John, which by the way means Yahweh has shown favor. And that's all that needed to be said. His name would be John. Now, you notice that before we get to the significance of John, our attention is first directed to Zechariah here. I want you to think about this. For nine months, this man has been mute. He has been unable to say a single word. For nine long months, the Lord had rebuked him for his unbelief. The angel had come. He had delivered God's promise. Zechariah hesitated hesitated to believe. And so it was told to Zechariah, you will be silent. You will be unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words. But look at what has happened now. Nine months have gone by and Zechariah has had some time to think it over. He's had time to mull over what the Lord has said to him. At the same time, he's had time to witness his elderly wife become great with child. Now, I wanna resist speculating, but how many times do you think Zechariah must have longed to be able to open his mouth over that course of time throughout Elizabeth's pregnancy and rejoice alongside of his wife. Well, brothers and sisters, in God's own way, in his own special way, God was doing a work in Zechariah's life. The Bible says that the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful, but later it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Well, church, here you have a man who has been trained by the loving discipline of his heavenly father, So that by the time you get to this point, Zechariah has gone from this this attitude of doubt and skepticism regarding God's word. How can this be to one of solid trust? His name is John. Now let's be fair, brothers and sisters. It is not as if Zechariah has gone from, from being an atheist Uh, a man who is entirely unbelieving to one who, who now believes. He wasn't some sort of cynic. The Bible describes him as someone who was righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But his faith had faltered. His faith had faltered for a moment in the same way that every single person in this room is capable of. There is a lesson here for us in this righteous man, in this priest, in this man who is mature in the ways of the Lord. Zechariah's life teaches us very clearly that doubt can be experienced by believers, by any believer, by even even very, very strong believers, Now, this is especially the case when the word of God is brought to bear in a personal way in our own lives. How many of you know that it's easy to say, yes, I believe God's word when it's kind of out there? at a distance, and it really doesn't rub on your life in any sort of practical kind of way. It doesn't call you to, to, to change in particular terms in the way you live or think or move or whatever it, it, it might be. It's one thing to say from a distance, I believe what God has spoken. It's another thing to stand firm when it's you that his word is staring in the face, so to speak, calling you to trust, to believe, to walk by faith. When it's your circumstances, the word of God begins to confront, asking you, will you believe me now? Will you trust me now? Well, it was through God's chastening and God's providential ordering of Zechariah's life, that he has been brought to this place of greater trust. I pray that your own afflictions are serving to that same end in your own life. If you are not in a season where you have some significant measure of affliction, think about Zechariah. Prepare yourself for when affliction will come. Look at what happens in verse 64. Uh, Zechariah takes that tablet. He scribbles down the child's name. And the Bible says, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, blessing God. This word, immediately, is one of Luke's favorite words in this gospel narrative. It's one of his favorite ways to highlight the decisive power of God and his faithfulness to his promises. God had said to Zechariah, you will be mute until the day that these things take place. And at the very moment that they did, Zechariah's tongue is loosed at that very moment and he began to lift up his voice and praise the one who had worked so mightily on his behalf. The effect of that joy spills out onto everyone around them. Fear comes on all their neighbors. This awe-filled, holy kind of reverence captivates everyone who sees this wonderful manifestation of the power of God, God's presence in this man's life. Everyone was talking about it. The Bible says in in the neighborhood, all throughout the hill country in Judea, all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. Brothers and sisters, here is the kind of response we want to cultivate in our hearts whenever the word of God is brought to bear to us whenever we see the wonderful work of God displayed, that we treasure it up in our hearts, that we lay them up within our hearts. We want to cultivate that kind of spirit within, meditating upon what God has said, pondering what he has to say, using all the God-given faculties with the Spirit's help to plumb the very depths of God's word. Psalm 119 and verse 14 says, In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. You see how Christian meditation is not about emptying the mind, it is rather filling the mind with the truth of the word of God, pondering upon it. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, that the more we give ourselves to that, the more that we study God's word, the more that we lay it up in our hearts, the more our understanding will grow, the more our love for the one it all points to will, will increase and grow in our lives. And so you can see the anticipation just continues to build here. The sense of excitement, the drama uh, continues to heighten. The town's talking about fear comes upon all of the neighbors. Everyone lays it up in their hearts. Verse 66 is the question the entire passage circulates around. They say, what then will this child be? Or in other words, what will this child become? Now the fact that they say what rather than who emphasizes the nature of this question. They are interested in the role John has come to fulfill. They want to know what this child will be. What is this child's mission? What is this child's purpose? Well, it is in response to that question, Zechariah is filled with the Holy Spirit and begins to prophesy. Look at verse 68, you find his very first words, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. After nine long months, this man who had struggled with doubt and unbelief erupts in worship and he begins to ascribe blessing and praise to the one who is blessed both now and forevermore. When we use the word blessed and we, we, we speak of God being blessed, we can use it to describe the one who is blessed. It can also be used to ascribe blessing to the Lord. And it's that latter sense that Zechariah is using it here to ascribe blessing to the Lord. Well, it's from there that he goes on to spell out all of the reasons that he has to bless the name of God. For he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Someone said that what is so consoling about Zechariah is that he got a second chance and in the end is given the best lines. The spirit brings these wonderful words to his lips and Zechariah says he has visited us. Not in the sense that God in Christ has dropped in and paid us a visit, but that he has stooped down to meet our needs. It's the very same word that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 25, talking about the judgment where Jesus says, I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. In other words, I was in this poverty-stricken, sin-sick condition, and you came, you drew near, you visited me, you ministered to me, you attended to my knees. That's what God in Christ has done for us. He has visited and redeemed his people he's picking up on the language of of the Exodus from, from, from Exodus chapter six. The Lord said, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. So here you have a new Exodus provided for in the incarnation Redemption carries with it this idea of being purchased out of bondage. Now, brothers and sisters, we know what Zechariah could never have imagined at this point, that the price of our redemption would be satisfied at the cost of God's only son. redemption in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace he's redeemed us from the hand of our enemies here he says he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David now young people when we talk about a horn here we're not talking about a musical instrument We're not talking about something like a trumpet, we're talking about a horn like on an animal. Think of a mighty ox, something with a great horn. And maybe you've watched uh, one of those nature shows before and you have two male beasts, wildebeests or oxen or elephants and they're in the middle of the rut it's mating season and they are sparring and they, it, it is a bloody mess. And they go at it until one of them finally wanders off into the bush and dies. I will raise up a horn of salvation for my people, God says, in the house of my servant David. The Bible calls God the horn of our salvation. In Psalm 132 and verse seven, 17, the Lord says, I will make a horn to sprout for David. Jesus Christ is the horn of our salvation. He is the one who has come to fight for us, to bring salvation and to deliver us from violence. He came to do what we are powerless to do ourselves. Salvation is not a work of man. It's God's God's work. The Bible says salvation is is of the Lord. He is the one who has accomplished it on our behalf. It belongs to the Lord. And then you see the mercy. His visitation brings. God sent his son to show them mercy. Promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. The oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Now you see How, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah piles up all of these terms that speak of God's faithfulness to His Word, His promise, His covenant, a sworn oath. God promised mercy to our fathers. God went on oath. And, beloved, it's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible. For God to lie, the writer to the Hebrews says. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment to that oath. He is where mercy is found. This is why the writer to the Hebrews says that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Christ has been offered up as a sacrifice for sin. Mercy can and will be found in him if we call upon his name. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of a soul, the hope that enters into the inner place behind the veil where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. You can have absolute confidence that if you call in the name of Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, he will be merciful towards you because God's given us his word. He cannot lie. His own reputation is at stake. So let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in the time of need. Are you in a time of need today? You need mercy today. I'll follow with me to verse 74. Why does God show mercy toward us? Why, beloved, have you come to know the mercy of Jesus Christ? Here's the purpose statement that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear church this is the so what of our redemption so that having been redeemed having been saved and delivered we might serve him without fear salvation is not the end of God's purpose in your life. Brothers and sisters, you have been saved to serve. Another way of of saying it is that we have been saved from something, we have been saved from our enemies, from our sin, we have also been saved to something. We have been saved to wholehearted service, lifelong service to the Lord Most High. You know that when God sent Moses into Pharaoh to say, let my people go, it didn't end there. He said, let my people go that they may serve me that they may serve me. I wonder if that's how you think about the Christian life, that you have been saved to serve, saved to give your life over to the service of God. Forget about vocational ministry. You have been saved to serve. How does that shape the way you think about going about your daily life? You have been saved to serve. This is such a challenge to so many of us who have, who have been taught superficial uh, versions of the gospel that tell us, well, Jesus came to save us from hell, but it really has little to no bearing on how we live our daily lives. Church, that is a truncated gospel. That is not the message of the scriptures. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Your life is not your own. You have been delivered from the hand of your enemies that you might serve him, and that without fear. Why does he say that? We all know that there there is a proper, appropriate, reverent fear that we are to have before the face of the living God. The Bible enjoins this on every believer. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Serve the Lord with fear, Psalm 2 says. And then there's the other half of that verse. Rejoice with trembling. Luke's emphasis seems to be on this aspect of our relationship with God, that to know the mercy of God so richly poured out upon our lives is to know a happy freedom in his presence. It is to be relieved of that kind of quaking, servile, cringing sense of fear, the kind that ought to actually accompany every unbeliever who is under the wrath of God. We are to know that the ground of our relationship is not what we do, fearful service, but mercy, love, the kindness of Christ. Now, just follow the logic with me. With that established in our minds, how should we serve Him? And Zechariah takes things a step further. He says, In holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. Now notice that he does not start with a kind of practical application that we might be inclined to think of first. The things that we can do, things we can accomplish, works that we can measure, the sort of tangible things that we can tally up and say, well, look at what I've done for God. He starts with the internal moral quality of the heart. He describes serving in holiness and righteousness before Him. And those last two words, before Him, are, are packed with significance. Living in holiness, in righteousness before Him. The Reformers talked about living quorum Deo, before the face of God. Which is to say that we live with a conscious awareness of the presence of God in everything that we do. Whatever it is we find ourselves doing, whatever our hand finds to do, we do unto him with the Lord as our audience, with his smile, his approbation as our chief concern, our chief delight, our chief aim in life. If we get that straight, if, if we get that sorted out in our mind, this, the so-called practical means of service that we are kind of given to, to thinking of will naturally follow. We'll, we'll discharge our calling as parents or children or singles or church members or citizens or employees or whatever else it is in a way that is pleasing before the face of God. But it starts with living in holiness and Righteousness living in a way that reflects our, our condition and our status as objects of God's mercy. Romans 12, one and 2, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. We have been saved to serve. I don't know if you have noticed, but we haven't said much at all about John. It's not until you get to verse 76 that Zechariah actually turns his attention to his son. The ministry of his child, he's so taken up with the glory of the Messiah. He says of John, you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways John comes to herald the coming of the Lord he has this preparatory ministry to make ready the way of the Lord now how does John do that how does he prepare the way for Jesus the Bible says that he comes to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins So there is a particular message John the Baptist comes to proclaim, which is to point people to the promised Messiah who comes to address the greatest need of humanity, the forgiveness of our sins. He heralds Christ, the one who is going to soon be exalted at, at God's right hand as leader and savior to give forgiveness of sins to Israel. This is the the theme that every sermon John the Baptist ever preached would have had at its center the forgiveness of sin found in the Lord Jesus Christ salvation belongs to the Lord That's a theme that needs to characterize every message that we deliver as well. Brothers and sisters, just lest we miss the obvious, notice that uh, we have as John's audience in verse 77, God's own people, Israel, uh, that they need to hear about the forgiveness of sin. They too need to embrace the promised Messiah found in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to call your attention as well to the fact that salvation includes, in, in, if you look at verse 71, uh, deliverance from oppressive political powers and regimes, and then you look at verse 77, and you see salvation from the offense of our personal transgressions against a holy God, And we know that that's not going to come about in a way that Israel expects. Luke holds off on on unpacking the details of that for now, that Christ is going to come once to bring salvation to the world. He's going to come and atone for sin on the cross, and then he will come a second time to judge the living and the dead. But it's not one or the other. It's a total package kind of deal. He brings forgiveness and he delivers his people from all who hate us. And that might make people like us feel a little bit uncomfortable. It might make people like us sitting in our comfortable chairs in an air-conditioned room in padded pews, those who have little to no worry about persecution or government intrusion feel a little bit uncomfortable. But church, it's exactly the kind of balm that our brothers and sisters in China or Somalia or Nigeria delight to hear about, that Christ will deliver them from all who hate them. Their guilt taken away and the hope that in the kingdom of God, we shall beat our swords into plowshares and our spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one shall make them afraid. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Well, dear ones, I wonder if you have tasted a bit of what John has outlined in this hymn. The forgiveness of sins, the mercy of Jesus Christ, this happy rest, everlasting hope. If you know even half of what he's saying here, you have to at times be finding yourself saying to yourself, how can this possibly be? Look at what he says in verse 78. Look at what he grounds things in. He says that this is all because of the tender mercy of our God. The word tender literally means bowels. He gets at this idea of the deep-seated nature of the affection and the compassion that God has for his children, the tender mercy of our God. Thomas Hooker was one of the English Puritans. When he was about to die, one of his visitors came uh, trying to offer some consolation. And he said to, to Hooker, he said, Sir, you are going to receive the reward of your labor. And Hooker said, brother, I'm going to receive mercy. I'm going to receive mercy. Zechariah says that it's because of the tender mercy of our God, sunrise shall visit from on high. Uh, This glorious image of a dawn breaking forth, giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Just pause there. What is he trying to communicate? What do we mean by sitting in darkness? What is the shadow of death? It is this ominous, looming, threatening reality every sinful man is faced with. The shadow of death is hanging over everyone who has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are born in a lost and gloomy condition without God and without hope in the world. A young man, however bright his future, however young and strong he is, sits under the shadow of death. We all do. But Christ has come to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. In him, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. The son of righteousness has risen with healing in its wings. Jesus is the light of the world. Whoever follows him will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at how Zechariah puts it in verse 79. What does that light bring to our lives? Guidance. Guidance, specifically into the way of peace. Now church, when we, when we talk about peace here, we're not talking about some kind of warm, gauzy feeling. We're talking about peace with God. Real reconciliation with the Father. Peace with our Heavenly Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John has already faded into the background and it's the light of the glory of the gospel of God in the face of Jesus Christ that takes center stage. This is something that John is going to be perfectly happy about when the time comes He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Until then, the text says the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Before John can go about this preparatory ministry, he too must first be prepared himself Love it, I would ask you, does your heart sing for joy like Zechariah's at what the Lord has done in Christ? Do you love Jesus for redeeming you, for coming, for forgiving you your sin? Do you long to serve him in holiness and in righteousness all the days of your life? Let's ask for his help in this together. Lord, we do bow our hearts before the greatness of your name. Lord, we bless your name with Zechariah and thank you for visiting and redeeming us. God, we thank you for raising up a horn of salvation for us. God, we know that it is in Christ that the bowels of your mercy have been most clearly displayed toward lost humanity, that it's in him we find our our deepest needs addressed, that it's in him all of our wants are truly provided for, that all of our longings are fulfilled. And so we give you glory. We thank you that the day spring on high has risen to shine upon us. The glory of the Lord has appeared. Lord, we thank you that in Jesus, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Many of us have on our minds, those who sit in darkness and we pray that you would be merciful to them. God, we pray that on them your light would shine. God, that they would be transferred to the kingdom of your beloved son. I Thank you for opening our eyes. Lord, thank you for turning us from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Lord, we ask for your help as we think about serving you. Lord, we contemplate the ways that your your word challenges challenges us and uh, even confronts us and are convicted of our selfishness and our uh, self-centered ways. We pray, Lord, that you would do a work in us. Lord, that this Uh, truth of being rescued from our sin and being saved in order that we might serve you uh, would flood our way of thinking and uh, shape our lives, uh, would inform the, the kinds of things we give ourselves to. Lord, our desire is that your glorious grace would be praised in the world God, I pray that like Zechariah, like John the Baptist, the good news of Jesus Christ, salvation from sin would ever be on our lips. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.